the ministry of Graceview Church. In South Haven, Mississippi. On graceviewchurch.org. At graceviewchurch.org. Let's hear from Pastor Chris. that we read from the catechism today, it talked about the ordinary means. One of the reasons that we have these things in the service is that we see these things that we've been doing in the services in the Bible, so there's a norm set. Everything we do isn't required, but a lot of them, frankly, seem to be required by any real church service. At the same time, it's our joy to do these things. And as we do them and they become habits, they become habits of the soul. I'm sure you all know habits, but when we talk about habits, we're usually talking about bad habits, right? We're usually trying to quit habits. Here we're trying to make habits. Habits of worship to where you get to the place where you kind of forget about the world outside these doors for a little while. Christianity is not a pacifist religion. It's very activist. And so we're active in everything we do in here, and we're active in everything we do out there. But there is a time and a place for letting the worldly concerns fly by and just focusing on your relationship between you and God and singing songs to the Lord with joy in the heart because this is what brings us happiness. So in that section of the catechism, that's what that was alluding to, that it's not just faith in Christ, but the entire life that is the expression of faith in Christ, which is not only a part of your salvation, it's what you're saved to. It's not what you're saved from, it's what you're saved to. I mean, what are you supposed to do once you're a Christian? Just like sit around and stare at the walls until you die or something? So we start to participate in the heavenly worship now, right here, in this place, at this time. We're going to be in first in Philippians chapter 4 today. This is an agitating time in American history. Mississippi is not immune to it. One of the most common concerns that happen within the Christian church is depression. Another is anxiety. I have to be very careful how I preach and teach so that the lessons that we learn here and the scriptures that we go to and the values that we impart do not cause more depression and anxiety instead of less, right? If we were to come to church and every time we were just talking about hell and the end of the world, how long would you last before you were dragged down into the depths of despair? Hopefully not long, 
Because otherwise, that would mean you were asleep, right? At the same time, these are real aspects of Christian theology. To avoid them completely just for the sake of your emotional well-being would be a dishonor to God and a dishonor to Scripture. So we do not exclude those facts either. But there is a diet that comes from Scripture. And most of it is hope, not fear, and not anxiety. You know, of all of the religions in the world, there's only one that makes fear a sin. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Where God himself says, do not be afraid. And he says it so many times. He says, do not be afraid of them. He says, do not be afraid of this. He says, do not be afraid of that. But then all of a sudden, after he tells us not to be afraid of anything, he completely releases us from the bonds of fear. Then we have this interesting way he sneaks fear back in. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding, right? In this, we find out this amazing clue to our lives and how we're going to navigate everything in it, which is really... If you look at the vast configuration of things in the universe and everything that could happen and everything that does happen and all the things we're afraid of that never actually happen, there's only one legitimate source of fear in the universe. And if you are reconciled to the Lord your God, all of the other things fade into the background. The things that we're afraid of don't usually happen, but every once in a while, they do. And so they stay at the forefront of our mind, and they cause us to think differently. They cause us to do things differently. When I was doing a lot of counseling out in California, for some reason, uh, uh, people that were involved in sports and athletes used to come. Because the idea that you can be a very good athlete and then things that are going on in your mind start to be the impediment in your performance is a very real thing. It's not fake at all. And when people get to a certain level of performance, the tiny fraction necessary to be, take them from being at the top of their game to being second or third and on their way down is very easy to happen, isn't it? And so one of the things that you do is you talk through the things seen and unseen. Now, some, to some of you, this might sound like Freud, but I promise you, it is not. The idea that you repress things that you should be thinking about and that you ignore things that really need to be talked about and dealt with, and that you'll even take things that you know are true and make them untrue in your mind because they're inconvenient facts, that's stuff we find in Scripture. As a matter of fact, in its basic essence, before he warped it and perverted it, I would figure that's where Freud got that from. In the first chapter of Romans, it even says that some people repress the truth in unrighteousness so that they can do things God doesn't like without the burden of conscience. It even says that some people's consciences are seared like with a burned iron so that they can't feel the things they know they should feel. Sometimes we refuse to think the things we should think and we refuse to do the things that we should do. I would put this to you, though. You know how in school, it's always the analogy is that the, the human being is like a computer. You put data in and data out. It's, kind of, it's not like a computer at all. It's much more like a cabbage. It's got lots of leaves, and if you pull off enough leaves, you just have nothing left, right? It's a very complicated thing that's organic and growing and changing through time. It gets bigger. It gets smaller. It changes. It eats. It consumes. It exudes. And there's nutrition there. We all change 
all the time. Our entire lives were in this scope of change, getting better and worse at different times. Every once in a while you meet somebody that feels like their life had a golden age, and it's done now. But God never really gives us that out. To him, everything that happens in our life from the beginning to the end is a, is a, is a path of engagement through which he's tutoring us into the things of God. So that when we go to meet him, we're ready for that great arena. In this, there was a situation here where there was stress between two people in the church. And the Apostle Paul's responding to it. We read it last week. We'll do it again today. Uh, from Philippians chapter 4. I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask also, true companion, help these women who labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now, we all know that verse. That's a famous bumper sticker verse. Those are some of the best verses. When we place it in its context and we see that it's really his response to a conflict between two people, which is causing stress in the church, it changes the meaning of it a little. He's not just saying walk around willy-nilly rejoicing for no reason. He's saying that as a consequence of this stress and strain between these two people and their relationship within the context of Christ's church, the first thing they need to do is regain their joy. If there's no joy, there's not going to be peace. If you know Christ, you've known joy. Do you know how common it is for somebody who's been a Christian a long time to just sort of pass by joy and hope because they've given it away for habit? I've been walking with the Lord so long and I've been in church so long that really, you know, I don't need any more joy. I'm up to here with joy. And then all of a sudden you meet a new Christian who's been a Christian a day or a week or a year. And their joy is excruciating. They are so full of the happiness of the knowledge of God. They've got like God coming out their pores and out their ears and out their nose. And you look at them and you're a little bit envious of them, right? Wow, they are so happy to be a Christian. Well, they'll get over that. They must be a new Christian. They must be a baby Christian because they're happy. The joy that the Lord our God gives is supposed to increase through time in every step, in every learning situation. The maturity is supposed to lead to the deeper, surer, fuller joy. Rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the God of peace, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Your hearts and your minds. Now, in the Bible, the mind and the heart are not really different things. He's saying that for emphasis, right? But the first thing he does is give you the prescription that's supposed to lead you to the conclusion. The prescription is give it all to God. Talk to God about it. Do not hide anything from him. You know, uh, how many kids in here know what a record player is? Wow, that's a lot of kids. Your parents must like music. Because a lot of times, kids don't know what a record player is. You say, oh, I remember that record. And there's like, no, it's a digital download. They don't even know what a CD is. You remember 8-track tapes? Now, how many kids have, know an 8-track tape? 
I remember tooling around town with my Boston 8-track tape on and my 1976 Celica. That was tunes in those days. You guys don't even know. Justin Bieber and all that stuff. I don't know. But at the same time, what happened if you left the record out for a few days on the record player? You'd get this fine layer of dust on there, right? And all of a sudden you'd put that needle on and you'd want to jam to your tunes and you'd start to hear... And it starts skipping across. You know, the soul is not such a thing that it is inviolable to the world outside of you. Stuff will get in there if you let it. You have to keep the motor clean. You have to get regular oil changes and every once in a while a tune-up. But at the same time, uh, things will happen that will cause an effect in you that you need to go back to God again and again. It is not the kind of thing where if you get something done once, it is sufficient. It is a daily diet, it is a weekly diet, but it's also an hourly diet. When the God says to you, pray without ceasing, he really means it. He doesn't necessarily mean in words, walking around talking to God all day, because everybody will think you're a crazy person, right? But everything you do is within the context of prayer with God as your constant beneficiary and companion. So that your power is not coming from yourself or your own ability or your own mind. And it's interesting here, he says that your mind and heart will be guarded in Christ Jesus. We all know about Satan's fiery darts, right? I live at a time in history when the Christian church no longer believes in a literal devil or Satan. They've gotten so educated and beyond such things that sure they believe in good and evil but an actual physical being that was created thousands of years ago that's invisible and still exists and has in mind your utter destruction oh, ha, 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 ha. at the same time when God talks about these things if you believe that God exists then everything in the Bible is fair game for reality and really, any reasonable, rational person, when confronted with the evidence, believes that at least a God exists. They may not understand or know or have been introduced to our God, but they believe in some God somewhere, which is why there's religions all over the earth. It's not because we're a seething tea of, sea of atheists. We're a seething sea of theists with confused ideas about God. And one of them about evil is that there are actual beings that exist, the intention and the contemplation of which is your demise, your corruption, your separation from God. And you might think to yourself, well, you know, how can that be? Well, uh, there's people that way. How many of you are willing to walk through downtown Memphis in the middle of the night without a weapon? <laughs> if people have the ability to be evil, don't spiritual beings also have the ability to be evil? And when people do evil, and you guys know what I'm talking about, there are some things they do that are so evil that it's almost inconceivable that such people exist, and yet there they are. And the idea that these people are not somehow teeming or walking around with, in, in league with spiritual forces of darkness, you just can't explain the capacity and the necessity of human evil without something bigger than it behind it pushing it along. So everybody wants to reduce everything to medical causes and medical concerns as if everybody could just take a pill and evil would go away. But that's not the way evil works. 
And one of the ways that spiritual forces of darkness will try to corrupt you and try to bring you down is through fear and depression and anxiety. And the primary place where these things start is in your relationship with God. Because this is the primary relationship you will ever have in your life. Nobody knows you as well. Nobody loves you as much. Nobody else interceded in the person and work of Jesus Christ and sent his only son to die on the cross so that if you believe in him, you might live with him and have eternal life. He loved you so much that he was even willing to die for you. And the Bible says that every once in a while, somebody might be willing to die for a really righteous man. But it is a strange God that is willing to die for a seething team of sinners to bring them from death back into life. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6. When we take a look at Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the famous Gospels, are talking specifically about the life of Jesus. And so this is Jesus himself teaching here. So when we hear Jesus teaching, we also pay attention to the fact that this is God, fully God and fully man, speaking to us from his own resources, not even through a secondary human author who he's commissioned to write these things, but God talking to us. Look at verse 24 of Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise to other. You can't serve God and money. And the next line, he starts to talk about anxiety. Because what's one of the primary keys to every human anxiety? After death and after love, it's taxes, right? It's money. You will all worry about money. What's the number one source of friction and argument between married couples? Number one is money. And that has not changed in 2,000 years, I guarantee you. So in verse 25, he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Just so we know, when the Apostle Paul says the same thing, he's quoting Jesus. He's filling in the details of what Jesus is teaching here. He's giving you more of Jesus, but Jesus is Jesus. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. When he says not to worry about your body, uh, what's the statistic? How many people die? It's like pretty close to 100%, right? You got a couple guys in the Bible that didn't die, but they kind of did. Right? Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. One walked with God and he disappeared. Everybody was looking for him. They're like, hey, where's that guy? Everybody else dies. Every one of us is going to die. For the Christian, death is mainly painful because of when other people die. Because you lose them and you're separated from them from through time and space for a time until you're restored to be with them again. We are not so afraid personally of death, though God has given us a zesty instinct for self-preservation, hasn't he? But we hate death because death is the primary manifestation of the consequences of sin and evil. And so when we see it, it sickens us. I know you guys have probably all been hunting, right? Every once in a while you're out in those woods and you smell that smell, right? Smell that smell of something's dead out here. There's no other smell like it in the world. You kind of taste it, and then later, after you've been home four or five hours, you're getting ready for dinner, you can kind of still taste it. 
Because death is so foreign and so corrupted and so disgusting to us that we fear death. That's one of the primary things that God tells us is not to be afraid of death because Christ has overcome even death. It holds no secrets for us. It holds no fear for us. Here he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of your life? You know, I know we get into the mysteries of God here, you know, and sometimes we talk about these mysterious things, you know, God's ordination, that God knew everything that was going to happen before he created the world, you know, what does God determine, what's free will, these are all the mysteries, these are the hard things of the faith. But here's one thing that scripture's really clear on, God already knows your day. And it's not like changing One of the reasons we know that is because there was a guy in the Bible that got his day changed. You guys remember this story? There's a king named Hezekiah. And he was sick and he was going to die. And he cries out to God and he prays and prays. for. And and God said, okay, I'm going to give you a few more years. Everybody who's ever died, God has had his hand involved in that, not for their wanted destruction, because he doesn't take pleasure in the destruction of anyone. If anything, we take a little more pleasure in the destruction of folks than God ever has. When God's involved in the destruction of something, it's always, always a necessity. Something that has to be done for the sake of justice or righteousness in these things. But he doesn't take pleasure in the death of anyone. And yet one out of every one person dies. And this would terrify us if we did not know the thing we know. And we did not know the person that we know. God created all life. He can bring life up from death. He created the entire universe and everything in it. He created it in ways that are fastidiously carefully planned for your pleasure and well-being. The reason that apple cobbler and blueberry cobbler taste like apple and blueberry cobbler is he was thinking about the human tongue when he designed them and brought them together. When he invented sugar one day in the afternoon because he didn't have anything better to do. When God made all of this stuff beautiful and rich and lovely, he did do it for you. You were not his afterthought. You were the highest part of his creation. Did you think that because sin came in, he was going to abandon you to death and not bring you to life? So when he talks about food here, really food is a primary anxiety for us. How long do we keep going if we don't get food? Some of us, only hours. Right? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of your life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive... And tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I'm going to tell you something a little strange. God loves grass. I mean, all we do here in Mississippi is mow grass all day, all the time. We even spend that. We spend more than other people spend on their cars, on our lawnmowers, so we can ride them around and mow the grass. In Los Angeles, we had two blades of grass. We cut one on Tuesday, and we cut. 
God loves grass. He made it on purpose. And he said, this is good. He made it before the animals. He made it before the birds. And he made it before people. People were the highest thing that he made, but everything he made is beautiful. Have you noticed, I've brought this up to you so you can check it out, that the last chapter of the Revelation is very similar to the first chapter of Genesis. When God made those things, he didn't say, these are okay for a while, but heaven will be different. He said, this is good. God made grass as an expression of his sovereignty and his love for the things that he's made. God's a gardener. He talks about him as a gardener all the time, right? And yet... Still, it's alive for a day, and then it's done. And the reason he compares it is to say, you are not like the grass. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, because tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, those last lines, if they strike you as kind of contrary to reason and a little bit of a riddle and a little bit of a poem, they are. He's not promising you, don't be anxious because nothing's ever going to happen. He's saying, look, what's going to come is going to come. But it still shouldn't cause you to be anxious because you know that the Lord God is on your side. Now, those of you that doubt your salvation, that is something in your soul that you must overcome. And you should pray to God about it. But the main means of it is the proclamation in his word that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are his child. He loves you and you are a member of the beloved. It doesn't really matter what your opinion is. It doesn't matter if you doubt it. If you believe in him, you could not believe in him unless he knew you. The atheist is an obvious thing, right? They're standing up on a street corner yelling at the God they don't believe in. If you're a believer in Christ, there is no rational basis for you to doubt his love and his intentionality in regard to you. He loves you. He has saved you. He is saving you. And he will save you. At the same time, some of you will think to yourselves, well, you don't know my sins. I've had a few. We all know sins. Isn't the entire gospel about people with sins? Do you really think your sins are so unique and special that God cannot save you? You don't start to doubt God's righteousness and his grace just because you've got a nice little barrel of sins that you keep to yourself. Sins are to be overcome, but they have already been overcome on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. There's nothing so powerful in you that you can overcome the grace of God. You're not that big a deal, really. In this, you know, we do have to remember these things. Therefore, do not be anxious. Isn't a suggestion by God. It's a command. Now, I know that we can break this commandment like any other commandment. But I would just encourage you in this. Don't doubt his love for you. He has done everything for you. Everything good you've ever had from the breath that goes into your lungs to the sunlight that shines upon your face to the relationships that you've had to the children that you've had. Everything you've ever had has been a gift from God that he gives you because he loves you. Let's not doubt his love. And then we will not grow fearful and anxious. Lord God, our Father. 
as we look into these things. We know that part of this is us, Lord God, but the bigger part is you. We pray that you would give us this gift of confidence in you, that you would just pour out in us by your spirit, Lord God, this great love and faith and hope in you that delivers us from all of these earthly cares. There are always things in every day to worry about and deal with, and practically we have to take care of stuff. But we know that when we take care of things, that you are also taking care of us. You will never abandon us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. And we love you for it. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You're listening to the Ministry of Grace View Church. You've been listening to Pastor Chris at Grace View Church in South Haven, Mississippi. Reach us at graceviewchurch.org. You can reach us at graceviewchurch.org.